okay. It's it's been a while. Ugh, <laughs> uh, it didn't uh, to be. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I, what is there to say other than like neither one of us really <laughs> thought they would take this long? Yeah. Life. Just that's kinda, what happened. Kind of. Yeah. Just kind of got away from us. We got busy. We had yeah. other things going on. It's springtime. Yeah. And in all honesty, the 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 best case scenario for this podcast would be if this was our jobs. But right. it isn't because, you know, we're taking we have to build it up. And at the same time, we also have jobs outside mm-hmm. of this podcast. So, like, when Andy texted me like a week ago being like, we should do another trilogy. I didn't realize that it hadn't been a week since we had recorded. It had been several. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah, time has gone by. We definitely need to come back and talk because we have a bunch that we want to talk about. But there's also just. In the span, I cannot just. It seems like the small amount of time, because yes, it's it has been a month, but it still is a month out of twelve in a year. Right. There has been a lot of shit that's just kind of like been dropped, both yeah. like you know big, big blockbuster stuff, new trailers, like Star Wars just announced they're doing like a non saga tr- like trio of films of just what? like they're doing Man- oh, James Mangold, right, right. they're doing the Ray film, and they're doing like they're doing a basically a Filoni sampler film where it's just like, here's Favreau and Filoni, everything they've been working on since Mando season one. Right, right. Which is just, which is great. It also makes me beg the question, why wasn't Kenobi one of those films? But that is besides sure. the point. That is a, that is for not this podcast. <laughs> but other than that, I mean, you, you've got Indiana Jones 5 looking great. Yeah. Because James Mangold is directing it. You have, I mean, this happened, I think, right as our last episode was coming out, but like now we've had more info and seen like Shazam, like ebb and flow in terms of, you know, well, come and go. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, especially, you know, cause John Wick chapter four killed it in the box right. office. And then mm. speaking of the box office, the fucking Mario movie is nearly making a billion dollars and it right. hasn't even been a month. Right. Which means we are getting at least two or three more of these. At films. this point, we might be getting a Smash Brothers movie before. I was talking about that the other day. It's like I do not know how that looks, but <laughs> if that's what they want to do, I will be morbidly curious. But like, no, the fact that like with with I mean DC in general, just the fact that it's like we got a Blue Beetle trailer that is just I I cannot believe that a film that was originally announced as an HBO Max original is now, like, saying, oh, we filmed it on IMAX cameras, like, two years after its announcement, and it's like, okay, hopefully it's fun. You have The Flash, which is, like, it just, at this point, because while we're recording this, the last trailer just came out before, the the second official trailer, whatever. Yeah, right. There are two ways this film could go. There's a there is a path where this film is literally fighting against every obstacle it has ever been given, Mm -hmm. which is changing writers and directors the fact that a new garden dc has come through and basically makes most of what this film does <laughs> irrelevant yeah you have the fact that its lead star is problematic which is an understatement oh yeah and you have the fact that it's still somewhat tied to the snyderverse which is also a mixed bag to <laughs> say the least yeah and yet there's a chance that this film could be like going to go up against all of this and actually could be good it yeah. can also just not be. Yeah. <laughs> it I mean, really could go either way. Like, credit to the marketing and trailer editors and stuff. They've made this movie look really fun. I mean, oh, yeah. As somebody who was, like, outside of these trailers, 
wholly expecting this movie to just be a dumpster fire. Oh um, God. I've, yeah. you know, seen both trailers and it's like, if I knew nothing else about this movie than just watching the trailer, I would just think that's going to be awesome. Yeah. Um, and I've seen people say that, but I've also seen people, I mean, you've seen this too, where people take yeah. screenshots <laughs> yeah. of the latest trailer and it's like, what the hell is this? Right, right. Like, this just looks rough and it's like, sure, it could be. I mean, sure. it's it's got like, I mean, Andy Muschietti as a director has been interesting because like he went from like Mama, which was like, I think, pretty low budget horror film that didn't pretty well in theaters to like doing Stephen King's it and not dropping the ball on that yeah. probably making a really solid two-parter the first part is obviously better than the uh-huh. second but like at least does like pretty much stuck the landing with that as best as he could for a, for a book that's like 48 hours long if you listen to it on audible yeah <laughs> and then you have him be like picking up a flash film that like was in pre-production to a degree from the the Dungeons and Dragons movie people, right? The John Francis Daly and his uh, co-writing partner and director, and they just dropped it, and then he picked it up, and then like doing all the process of like you know probably saying, "Oh, we want to put Supergirl in this, we want to do this, we want to do that," and then they're told <laughs> that it doesn't matter, yeah. <laughs> but it's still coming out because it's too deep in the hole. And I mean, yeah, the, the most recent trailer gives it like a serious vibe. I, I still think that when 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 Batman says let's get nuts <laughs> yeah. in the most boring way possible <laughs> is funny as hell. Yeah, I do like, I do love the the Michael Keaton just having no idea what's going on in in this movie. God, if um, if when we see it cuz I assume I mean we're probably both going to see it at some point yeah. but like if this ends up being the best Batman performance we get out of Ben Affleck, and this is the last fucking time we might Dude, see it, it's Ben Affleck hilarious. has said this is the best Ben Affleck Batman performance. He said, "I have five minutes in this movie, and I think it's the best five minutes I put into the character." That's... Like he said, "I think I, I I can't remember his exact words, but he basically said, I think I finally figured it out with this one." God, isn't that so sad? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel bad for him, but also, like, you know, I mean, none I... of his appearances as Batman really did anything for me. Not yeah. his fault, but the movie. No, yeah. But, like, it's just insane, just the fact that, like, all this is coming to it. That last trailer, it's still the Flash film. The fact that we're getting a film that has, hey, do you do you know this problematic actor that we've been dealing with constantly? What if there were two the entire yeah. film? And it's like, okay, well, thank God they're a great actor, or at least a good <laughs> actor, because, like... This is going to take a lot of jumping over hoops for this. I do have to wonder, though, if, you know, I mean, maybe even without the controversies surrounding Ezra Miller, um, I have to wonder if this movie is going to prioritize all the other, the characters and the Michael Keaton of it and all that over, like, really focusing too much on on Flash, um, which could be to the film's detriment. Um, but I could also see it as being like a device, this movie being a device for kind of putting to bed the old mm-hmm. DCEU. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I think it would be hilarious and also kind of cool if this movie ends with Flash basically writing himself out of existence or that... like winding up in a different universe. Maybe oh, yeah. he gets his happy, happily ever after in another universe, but like he's gone from the main timeline or whatever. If this is how they announce who is flash next in some way shape or form would be insane grant gustin shows up right at the end and just I, replaces him i think i would blue screen internally if that happened because i just can't i was error believe, 404 i would like i cannot believe because like yeah because in that that case is like 
Yeah. I mean, it's also the fact that, like, the most recent trailer, it's watching it, it feels like we're seeing a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. But not in a bad way. It feels like they're hiding yeah. a lot. I think we're seeing pieces of the same scenes. Yes. Um, kind of over and over. We're seeing Batman in his cave. We're seeing that daylight Batman Supergirl fight out yeah, in the, the open dual, plains or the whatever. dual flashes. Uh, yeah. Zod is the main villain, which feels like is like there's got to be more. Than is he the Zod. main villain? The way that they're selling the trailer, it feels yeah. like it. I mean, I will say, I kind of this is. I mean, because this is classic. This is if, I, if this doesn't sound silly as hell, but is honestly just living the life of a <laughs> fucking nerd. There are toys that DC is selling right now of the Flash film or like a pre-order that makes it kind of seem like there is an another villain or two maybe latter oh, half yeah that is like uh, but of course they if you don't watch if you don't know you just watch the trailers right it's just michael shannon coming back yeah which is yeah i yeah i don't know what to make of it um i did the did the uh all the James Gunn new DC slate happened since our last episode, or was th- that before that? I think it might have been right before it. I think we just kind of we might have touched on it a little bit last time, but there's so much. Yeah. And since then, there has been more information right. as to what's next and who's what, and just here. I mean, I gotta say, if there's one thing, and I I would I would love it if he listened to this at some fucking point, but I think James Gunn, it's fascinating how he is handling the DC films he has no tie to. Yeah, because he is he is not hiding which ones he likes the most, and but it's also like, because he is he is someone who is very in tune with the internet, and I think you know I think other very present online. Yeah, I think most. I mean, I think a lot of the MCU people are too. I definitely would say Feige probably is in in some degree. He's a lurker. He's yes. Yeah, but like Gunn just has the energy of someone who's aware that right now. There are people out there who don't even care about the actual quality of superhero content. They're just kind of bored of it. Yeah. I mean, it is. it makes sense. Fatigue happens constantly. And right, we've talked right. about fatigue a lot in this with superhero stuff. But, like, the fact that he has just taken up this mantle of DC. He's made this huge new list of, like, TV shows, cartoons, movies. Mm-hmm. And he has all this stuff that he – I mean, he's doing fucking Superman. <laughs> right. Which I'm actually – yeah that could be really cool but the fact that he has all that and he still has the guts to say on camera the flash is one of the greatest superhero films i've ever seen yeah i mean it's that seems like a man that is aware like hey i'm the guy that made probably two of your favorite marvel films right so maybe listen to me right and it's like if he's bluffing damn good bluff right but well, that's... but like you said, he's not been saying that about all of these no. kind of end of the line he... DC movies. <laughs> his 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 favorite, my favorite thing he ever said about Shazam Two was <laughs> the best part about Shazam Two is that it's not really connected to anything. Yeah, he basically said that in his like pitch about yeah. the new DC universe. It was it's... like, yeah, best part of this is we can ignore it and never go back to it. It's like if someone said the best part about Brussels sprouts is that you can put it on another plate. Right. Like it's like it's not eating you can it. Coat it in. <laughs> toppings you can put honey on it like it's not the fact that it's there it's the fact that like you can push it aside and ignore it yeah and like aquaman 2 barely touching that oh right he's he's given a decent amount of buzz to blue beetle which sure we'll have to wait and see on that but like it's just kind of wild of all this kind of you know blockbuster buzz all across the space it's just the fact that like this man who is you know on tour right now for guardians 3 and is also saying like you know Guardians 3 is one of my favorite films I've made. I can't wait for everyone to see it. 
Also, go see The Flash. It's one of the greatest superhero films of all time. Right, right. He's double dipping, and it's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. And all, apparently Tom Cruise also thinks that, which... Yeah, what that the was, hell? That was kind of my favorite what-the-fuck entertainment news headline of the last quarter was oh, like... Yeah. yeah, Tom Cruise saying he requested a private screening of The Flash movie, which, first of all... I just never pegged Tom Cruise as that interested in superhero movies. Let alone The Flash. Yeah, right. Um, I didn't know he was invested in the DCU or whatever. Maybe he's just always liked The Flash and is yeah, like, oh, a Flash never- movie. <laughs> yeah, he probably has not seen any of the other stuff. He was just like, oh, Flash movie? I love it. That man's too busy um, like training to not die at a Mission Impossible <laughs> stunt to even what? remotely try the Snyder Cut, I would assume. I think he's hilarious how he talks about movies in the press because like he'll just people will ask him you know what he does with his free time and he's always talking about how he's training and learning new skills Mm -hmm. and taking classes but he also at the same time claims i watch every movie that comes out oh yeah and it's like i don't believe you especially because when he's pressed about it like what's your favorite movie you've seen of the last whatever he just Mm -hmm. he just goes i love all of them i just i watch everything i love all of them it's like i don't i I love you tom as a performer but i don't know that i buy that you're sitting at home watching every movie because you're out there getting your pilot's license and your (laughs) helicopter license and learning how to scuba dive for 20 minutes at a time you know i mean unless tom cruise says hey one of the best ways to learn how to fly a plane is to have snyder cut on your phone saved (laughs) and have it in the background as noise if batman can fly the batwing (laughs) in the flash then i can fly a helicopter in mission impossible Uh, basically what we're trying to say is if the flash doing well leads to an actual batman beyond film cool yeah down for that yeah oh, absolutely uh, but, i mean best case scenario is getting michael keaton as old man bruce wayne yes oh my gosh that's uh, it's hilarious too that it's clear that they're aware that that's why some most people are excited oh about right the new film, yeah and so they're committing to it fully which um, is why i wonder if like is that they're just leaning into it in the marketing or is he really going to be the like kind of highlight of the movie i would i mean again who knows keep, keep in mind this was supposed to be one of two films where keaton was supposed to right, show up right and then of course the second one didn't happen because apparently blue beetle was the uh, sad sal- girl yeah salvageable well i mean like blue beetle was oh. a salvageable one of the hbo max right, right. original yeah. films compared to Batgirl. Yeah. apparently his role in batgirl was really small though it doesn't he had like me. one scene or something yeah but um, other than that uh well on the other side of the aisle oh, well, in comic hello. book comic book news, we've we've gotten less official announcements from Marvel, who's been kind of quiet recently, yeah, amidst a lot of things. But we have there've been a lot of reports going around, mm-hmm. um, you know, about what they're what they're doing if they're shaking up their future because Ant Man pretty uh, pretty well underperformed. Um, yeah, they've I mean, seen a little bit of a slump throughout the latter part of Phase Four. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, of course, let's, the Jonathan Majors stuff. Yeah, let's discuss King. the King in the room. A lot yeah. of stuff has happened in the last few weeks, especially right. when we've been gone. That it's like this is a perfect time for Marvel to maybe right after we do our Creed trilogy. Yeah, oh, <laughs> and talk him. Oh, up. <laughs> I, I don't. Uh, this not going to happen anytime recently. But I cannot at one point re-listen to that and be like, God, yeah. God, if yeah. this is uh, wow! Talk about like age like milk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh wow! I mean, Creed three is still really good, and sure, Majors yeah. as an actor still, does a yeah, good job. He's given that film. so many good performances. That doesn't mean anything that's happened now isn't relevant right. or should be taken right. like seriously. But yeah, but, Mar- Marvel's made no, no, given no words about what they're gonna do there. No, 
rumors are flying about all over the place, but they haven't really said what they're going to do. He's probably already shot his stuff for Loki season two. Yes. Because that comes out this summer. Well, I because, think. I mean, spoiler alert for all those who definitely saw Quantumania. I'm assuming everybody who listens to this saw Quantumania, not yeah. just the two of us. Right. But one of the post credit scenes is Majors in Loki season two. Right, right. So that's going to be fun to see, like, how much of him is in that. Yeah. But yeah, it's of and of of like kind of the surface level Marvel stuff. We got a trailer for the Marvels, right? Which I I think it looks like fun. Sure, gonna hold my reference. I like um, Nia DaCosta did the Candyman film yeah. for a while, and yeah. I love that. I'm really hoping that she's able to shine through this film, and I'm hoping you know Brie gets more to do. I'm hoping they do more with uh, Monica, mm-hmm. and you know I love Kamala. And speaking of which, apparently. Kamala's dad from Miss Marvel also has some controversy surrounding him, but that's Marvel's yeah. going through a lot yeah. <laughs> right now. And it's not even not even production stuff. It's like yeah. just a whole mixed bag of stuff. Well, yeah, I mean I think they're in a state of I think they've finally I mean, people have been saying, you know, the the train's slowing down for years. Oh, and yeah. like that's been totally untrue. I think they are finally maybe starting to feel some of that the cooling off of enthusiasm from audiences and realizing they need to shake it up a bit more rather than just go bigger or make oh, more yeah. movies and stuff. Um, on the positive end, I think Feige recently, maybe it was at the Quantumania premiere or something, he gave some interview where he said, like, he's really wanting to focus on um, giving movies to, like, bigger names and more experienced directors with more specific yeah. styles and mm-hmm. stuff. And, like, I think that could be great. Uh, you know, yeah. whenever Marvel does put their movies in the hands of a, uh, you know, kind of more seasoned director, it it tends to turn out pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ryan Coogler, James Gunn. I mean, even as far back as like the first Captain America, Joe Johnston did a, you know, yeah, bang up job. I mean, even though it's controversial, Chloe Zhao was a, a wonderful choice for like a different sure, approach. Sure. And I so mean, it's like, yeah, you'd say what you want about that movie, but it feels like a Chloe Zhao movie. It's actually you know? shot in locations. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think definitely not, not that inexperienced directors shouldn't be given a big opportunity like that, but I do think maybe they're realizing giving somebody with a vision and letting them execute that vision is maybe mm-hmm. their ticket to more, diverse interesting stories being told i would hope so rather than railroading less experienced directors or whatever yeah and i'm excited too because like hopefully that with guardians 3 coming out very very soon yes we're we're about to see it very soon which i'm cannot wait to cry i i'm excited to see if the good graces of that film if it's good again we i'm i'm I am expecting it to be good, but it also it just depends on what we yeah, see. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? But like, if it is good, I hope that the good graces that that film does just keeps kind of rolling the train down mm. with like future projects, you know. And hopefully, they will take the time and effort for those projects to just, you know, kind of bring back less less fatigue, more intrigue. I guess. Is, yeah. Yeah. But uh, un you know classic us talking about superheroes for a little <laughs> too long. There were two things that I wanted to talk about with Andy because on this is a complete surprise to him. But during our break, there were two trilogies that kind of came out of nowhere that I think would be fun. We did. And I wanted to bring it up to him now because I want to see his reaction. (laughs) 
first is Equalizer. Live Andy reaction. Yeah. First is the Equalizer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Equalizer 3 came out. and Wait, it or, came or, out? Or the trailer. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah. Equalizer 3 has a, uh, comes out in September, so it's coming out during right. the dry spell of the season usually. <laughs> and, you know, those are fun. Those, uh-huh. those will be interesting to talk about because it's like the fact that those films are keep – like the fact that that first film I think just did like a solid 6 out of 10 critically uh-huh. – like kind of mixed, but like did incredibly well numbers wise. Right, right. The most people when they talk about Equalizer two, they say it's fairly forgettable. But now looking back, it also has Pedro Pascal right, right. right before he blows up in Mando, and so like it'll be fun to watch that. And it looks like the third one is just Denzel fighting the mafia, which is like yeah, literally all you could really ask for, I guess, in well, a film like that. Those movies, I've actually not seen either the first two all the oh, way through. I've seen I've clips, s- but that's a that's a those are movies that are like all over like reels and YouTube shorts of just like clips from those movies of just yeah. Denzel just doing his badass Denzel thing. Oh yeah. Schooling some young bloods mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. The, I've seen the first film and I really enjoyed it. It's a fun time. Yeah. I, it's one of those films where it's like, I've heard, I've heard people like really gush about it because it's like, of course it's, it's Antoine Fuqua. So it goes either way. Right. It's right. Denzel who is killing it. But if anyone goes like, oh, it's almost as good as it's like it's good as John Wick, I go slow down. Yeah, right. Maybe but it's not to that. Point. But it's funny how how those movies have taken hold culturally, yeah. even if they weren't, you know, mm-hmm. massive touchstones, you know, at yeah. the box office or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, those. I mean, it's Denzel. We've already yeah, talked about yeah. Denzel, and we can't wait. I cannot wait to. Well, see. he needs another Oscar, and Equalizer Three is God, his ticket. Please. Please, if he directed Equalizer three, that'd be even better. <laughs> yeah. But like, I was, I was, cause I was curious. I was like, is Antoine coming back for this? And it's like, yeah, okay. He is. Okay. Yeah, it's Antoine and Denzel. And speaking of Fuqua, I just watched Training Day the other day. Oh, I, I still need. I have not actually seen it all. The I, I had not seen. It I've either. seen the King Kong scene. Wow. Well, uh, but yeah. Uh, but the other trilogy, I think, would be more interesting, but could also <laughs> just like blow back in our faces because the third one might suck. There is a new Insidious film. Oh, it's technically the fifth five, film in the franchise, yeah. but here's the thing: is three and four do not partake to any of the family. Oh, three, so five th- is bringing it back to uh, what's his name? Three and four are basically prequels of the uh, the spiritualist, right? The, the, the woman, the exorcist, the lady, yeah, lady. medium it's person, the medium. She basically the third film is basically how she gets into being a medium, and then the fourth film is like the backstory of her powers apparently right and so like three and four have nothing to do with the family and then all (laughs) of a sudden fucking 12 years later we're getting a patrick wilson directed oh right i forgot he was directing where the kid the main kid that goes into a coma in the first film is back he's college age which is wild to think about and it looks like it could be a fun time. It also, so just talking about all three of those films, it also could be like a Conjuring trilogy, where the third film just <laughs> bores just us. Doesn't have it. Which apparently Conjuring is also getting a fourth film, <sighs> which is in development. I don't, uh, I don't really want to watch it. I know, but we talked about honest. we talked about the trilogy, so we got another prequel to add to the list whenever that comes oh, out. Oh man! But yeah, I think that uh, we could call that the Odd Insidious trilogy because that yeah. is. Very odd. Yeah. That whatever three... the name of the family is. The yeah. Insidious. Yeah. Whatever their name and is. And we could watch we can watch three and four in our good time to talk about those films, but three's dog shit if I remember. I uh, yeah, I have not seen I remember three. I haven't seen two, nothing. three, or four. I've only seen the first one. Two is fun. I remember two being fun. Hopefully that stays that way yeah. when it goes to rewatches, but well, 
we are now almost at 24 minutes in. Yeah. It's perfect to get back into the swing of things, talking about all the new stuff coming out, because, hello everyone, I'm Logan Sowash. And I'm Andy Carr. And this is Odd Trilogies with Logan and Andy, and on Odd Trilogies, we take a trio of films, whether tied by cast and crew, thematic elements, or just numerical order. We talk about each film and discuss the good, the bad, and the weird surrounding them. And I'm excited to talk about today because when we were talking about coming back after a little bit of a hiatus, Andy was like, let's talk about one of our more, we have silly options that we'd have fun doing. We also have serious We also options. have ideas that just kind of come up as the world's movie oh, yeah. schedule comes out. We're yeah. like, oh, we could do this in time with that. Yeah, like Equalizer and the Insidious yeah. stuff. Like it's, But with this, we were like, let's pick something that we're really interested in and we'd have a fun time talking about. So, of course, if you watched our socials, we are talking about the Cohen McDormand sampler. Is that what you're calling it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's why I talk to myself when I, in the middle of the night. I say, oh, sampler, that's a good name. Yeah. So this sampler is three of the Cohen brothers' films where Francis McDormand is the lead. Right. In case you don't know, Francis McDormand is a three Oscar winning <laughs> actress, mainly who's won for Fargo, three billboards out of Abbey, Missouri, and re- most recently, Nomadland. Right. Years, right. years back. She is married to Joel Cohen, yeah, and is the is the lead in their first film, which is the first film of our trilogy, Blood Simple, in mm-hmm. 1984. The lead in 1996 is Fargo, our second film, and then our third and final film, 2008's Burn After Reading. Right, and these three films are mainly tied by them as the directors and as her as a actress and being the lead. However, there are some good thematic ties to I think with sure, each film. Sure, sure. But and, yeah, the uh, the Cohen brothers and McDormand have just had this very long and fruitful and, and oh, yeah. productive collaborative career uh, together and separately. Yeah. Um, and so we just thought it'd be interesting to kind of look through at kind of three different points. I think each film is 12 years apart and at various points in their respective careers. So it's kind of a good... You know, each of these films is kind of a cool touchstone for their careers as yeah. filmmakers and artists, and um, and like you said, yeah, there's some commonalities and interesting uh, parallels between all three films. Yeah, and it also shows McDormand's versatility oh, over yeah. the years because the first film she's in her late twenties, in Fargo she's in her thirties, right, and then she's in her forties going into her fifties and Burn After Reading. Yeah, and it's she's just so fucking good. I mean. Yeah. I don't know if we've talked about it much in the podcast, but both Andy and I are huge fans of Three Billboards Outside Nebbing, Missouri, yeah, yeah. and she's phenomenal in that. Um, I mean, she, in other films you might know her from, she's you know she's an almost famous. She's great in that. Yeah, she's in a lot of uh, Wes Anderson joints, both animated and live action, like mm. Moonrise Kingdom, Isle of Dogs. If you actually are a TV fan and you have Prime and you've seen Good Omens, which has David oh, Tennant yeah. and Michael, oh gosh, Michael, is it? It's not Sheen. Is yeah, super, I think, is it Sheen? Isn't it Michael Sheen? It might be Michael yeah. Sheen. Uh, but Michael Sheen and David Tennant, uh, Francis McDormand plays God in that series. Right. She's a delightful narrator in that series. But she is just very versatile. We thought it'd be fun to talk about, you know, not only just three great performances from her, but also the fact that, like, this is also three different periods of the Coen Brothers' career, starting with their directorial debut, going to, like, the film that really transitions them into more award-winning auteurs right. per se and then you have the third film that is like kind of the start of like when they make really damn good films but they don't always click per se with the audiences well, yeah it's kind of their 
they're leaning back into like okay let's do genre let's like dig into something that's fun for us and not necessarily what's gonna like grab us all the attention and stuff and also to clarify too because this is something that Andy and I also had to talk about because there was some clarification in terms of these three films because Joel Cohen has been credited for a lot of these films in the early years when it really is both Ethan and Joel and it might have been just for because of kind of a union situation and kind of SAG situation and so hilariously enough the first time that Ethan gets credited as a director for a Coen Brothers film is The Lady Killers, which is just so sad. Right. But, but uh, technically speaking, they both directed yeah, pretty uh, much all three of these the films. classics. Even yeah. Yeah, even like Big Lebowski, Miller's Crossing, Hudsucker Proxy. Like, yeah. It's always usually been them. And it's towards you know the late 90s, 2000s when they start doing projects together and like kind of getting both credit. Joel also does some more solo stuff. You mm. might... The most recent solo thing Joel has done is The Tragedy of Macbeth. Right, which also stars Rick Dorman. But that doesn't have Ethan, so it doesn't count right. in the sampler. Right. So, to top it off, to start with Blood Simple, if you've not seen this film, you definitely should. Because, mm. I mean, I think for both Andy and I, especially when it comes to, you know, having friends or being a part of groups that use Kino unironically... <laughs> You know, Blood Simple is usually talked about as like a classic, a cult classic film. Not only is it the Coen Brothers' first film, but it's on the Criterion Collection. It's considered like a phenomenal first film debut. Mm-hmm. It's the start of Frances McDormand as an actress because she basically, it's like this is the film that kind of starts her career. And also, well, she, it's literally, I mean, it's her first yeah. film performance. Yes. And she also gets married to Joel the year this comes out. Yeah. And. After years and years of basically hearing about this film, it's great to finally watch it and just go, God damn, this is great. Yeah. this it's is so good. This is kind of one of those movies, at least for me, was always in that um, kind of in the, the cultural canon of like, oh, you know, must see first films by great directors. You know, yeah. I think of like Bottle Rocket and, uh, yes. um, you know, just the very, very well-known, rec- recognizable directing talents today like huge mm-hmm. behemoths oh, yeah. in the directing world um you know their first film very much kind of you can see everything that comes after in this movie yeah. and like you know if you like the coen brothers if you've seen you know uh no country for old men like you can oh. see so much of that movie in blood simple um yes so I much mean... of that quietness and moodiness and a lot of their their stylistic choices in in a lot of their later movies yes kind of all starts here there's kind of even a a scene in this that almost predates one of the best scenes in no country for old men yeah is the uh the door handle being blown off scene with brolin and with uh, brolin and uh, javier but yeah it's what's so fascinating about blood simple is just you know performances wise it's pretty straightforward like yeah. most of the characters are doing it completely straight with one person in particular <laughs> going over the top in the best way Emma T. walsh yeah who is i mean i can't think of what else most people would know him from he's basically in everything for the longest time like there's lots of kids stuff lots of comedy stuff yeah he's in, he's in a bunch of stuff but he was kind of there like I saw some interview that where they were talking about like they he was like their big get like they oh, they have no that. idea why why he agreed to do it. Um, he was incredibly just like, yeah, let's let's uh, let's do this thing and showed up doing this wild He's... accent and they were like, we don't know how to tell him 
that that's a stupid accent, but he did it anyway, he, and it works. He literally is like I think two steps away from being a David Lynch character in this. Oh yeah, he just fucking he feels like like a custom character in a random like video game. Like it's yeah. like this guy should not exist in this world the way right. that everyone else is taking it seriously. I mean, yeah. you also have I mean. Because he's he's not the coolest character. The char- coolest he's character. He's also not is, the main character, despite isn't. being the biggest name. No, yeah, I mean, the coolest character is Maurice, who's one of the bartenders. And <laughs> right. the, his whole white outfit, yeah. just completely like the song he picks on the jukebox that constantly constantly comes back as a, almost as a motif. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the lead is God. I cannot think of his name off the top of my head. I mean, the uh, two... Ray. Yeah, Ray. Uh, that's John Getz. John Getz is Ray. The, the film basically is Frances McDormand has an affair. She wants to leave her husband. She leaves her husband with one of her husband's co-workers. Uh, one of his employees. Yeah, one yeah, of his employees. Her husband owns this bar, and yes. Ray works at the bar. And basically her husband hires Emmett T. Walsh to kill both of them. Yeah. And it's as simple as that. And what's great about the Coens is, like, a lot of their films could really just be, like, the synopsis is one sentence. Maybe two if you really wanted to push it. And Mm -hmm. you get across what the film is trying to do until you watch it and you go, holy shit, there's a lot between the lines that I didn't realize you could, like, really expand upon. Right. And really deal with. Because what's so great about this film is the simplistic narrative leads to some of the best misunderstanding uh liar revealed type shit like it really is just yeah well it's it's stunning how the entire movie is built on characters just not knowing things yes um and you know that is a that is a classic device used in movies and books all storytelling Mm -hmm. is audience knowing more than the uh than the characters but like this movie takes that to an extreme to the point where it's like pretty much every development and increase in tension that happens across this movie is due to somebody not knowing what's actually going on and yeah. making an incorrect assumption. There, um, there it's is... just fascinating to see that spiral out of control and you just, just over and over. <sighs> to, by the time you get to the end, the two characters who are oppo- like you know facing off against each other don't even know why they're doing it yes. or who they are it or what's leads, going on. leads to the best fucking line at the end of the film. Where, yeah. And it's so... There's there's a trope in most media that like I think most people are kind of sick of, especially when it comes to television, where it's just like just talk to each other, where like these lies or just like these secrets kind of sure. you know just kind of build up in people, and you're like if you just talked about it like humans, you could probably get this out of the way. Blood Simple has the rare occasion where even if they did that and talked to one another, they still wouldn't understand what's going on. Well, and it also, it, it's a movie where the situation fully justifies why these characters are absolutely. not communicating or why they don't know everything. It's just, they're all a little bit paranoid yeah. and guilt-ridden yes. and afraid of what's going to happen if they talk, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you have, like, every character at one point, I believe, has a moment where like they say a single line to another character and at the moment it's just you feel like it's either trying to throw them off or maybe just stop a conversation with it ultimately that one line will just define their decisions <laughs> yeah. like with ray specifically marty uh abby who played by francis mcdormand abby's husband hopefully soon to be ex-husband <laughs> in her mind uh, basically Marty tells Ray, like, if she tells you anything, like everything's fine or she's not talking to anybody on the phone, 
she's a liar because she did that to me with you. Mm-hmm. And Ray is like, oh, whatever. But later on in the film, it's just you can tell any time Abby does something and doesn't fully outright say it, even though it doesn't make any sense why she would over-explain it. Mm-hmm. Ray overanalyzes it too much. Yeah. And leads to some great moment. Leads to like one of the best misunderstandings in the whole film, which is who killed Marty. <laughs> yeah, right. And him just thinking Abby did it, and Abby's just playing a great game of charades with him. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's also like to come back to McDormand as an actress. Like you have a film where you have basically three male leads, kind of like or kind of co-leads, where you uh-huh. have. You have Ray, you've got Marty, and Emma T. Walsh's, which I can't remember his character's name off the top of my head. Uh, M. Emmett Walsh is uh, Visser. Visser, yes. Yeah. So you have these three men who are kind of like, you would assume in a film like this, dominate most of the time. And she would be basically the love interest that would have a little bit but not much development. Right. But because it's Francis and it's because it's the Coens, she is just as important, if not has probably the most subtle of the development in the film yeah she's probably the most normal of the four in terms yeah of how she's... i mean she's certainly like she's the one who makes the least like mistakes out of fear yes. and ignorance and yes. assumptions and she's an interesting kind of i don't know stand in for the for the femme fatale yeah. of this kind of genre because i mean it, this movie was like largely kind of templated off of uh not only noir films but especially uh exploitation films and Mm -hmm. horror films of the time Uh, you know these kind of really low budget high shock value things um the uh, coens were good friends with sam raimi yep and he had just done evil dead um and so they were kind of shooting for that but noir rather than horror and so in in the place of the typical kind of femme fatale who's this you know deceptive kind of seductress uh, you know anti-heroic figure abby is just kind of not not exactly innocent but like she's not playing people she's just caught up in this and winds up surviving mostly kind of out of ignorance yeah it's it's she's very subversive in that kind of co- like faux femme fatale pseudo thing yeah. it's she at, from the get-go the first one of the first things you see in the film is her having sex with ray cheating on her husband right and in most films like that you would have a femme fatale either be like i'm a bad girl that's why i do things like that right. or i'm very mysterious or it's like i don't know what i've done wrong clearly not clearly lying yeah. to herself or, in, yeah that or that would be like a reveal late in the movie that yeah. oh i've been cheating on you this whole time yeah. or whatever but thankfully i mean with what the cohen's doing what mcdormand does you make a realistic person who when she cheats on her husband goes i'm not gonna lie about this anymore uh-huh. i did this this has been uh, this has been coming this has been coming for a while i can't lie about this anymore i'm leaving you we need to just have a divorce right the most realistic like response to something like that it is arguably not even trying to be like running straight into ray's arms as if they're going to be happy together fully no. it's more like just like she wants to be on her own again and just like well she needs to get away from yeah marty because he's crazy yeah, and be with somebody who is going to listen to her because that's you find out throughout the film that marty has a lot of issues that he bottles up right. and abby is not that person abby is the complete opposite <laughs> leading to like again anytime because like watching it, it's like almost since you spend a lot of time with ray marty 
you kind of in your mind almost automatically go, oh, so these are the guys that are probably going to get the most development. And they do get a lot of development, especially Ray, because, mm-hmm. I mean, because Marty dies halfway into the film. <laughs> and the rest of the film is really just them thinking, oh, was he really dead? When yeah. He really is. But the fact that, like, any time Abby showed up, it just feels like she had a great moment to give a little bit more character in there as mm-hmm. subtly as possible shows just how good McDormand is, even with maybe very little that she needs in a scene. Right. Leading to the fact that it's like, and it shows just how important even those little moments are, because when you get to that finale and it's fucking Francis McDormand between versus Emmett T. Walsh. Yeah. Two characters who have not talked to each other at all in this entire film. And there's still tension. Right. You still care about Abby. You don't want her to die in that scenario and you want yeah. her to survive and she has the one of the best last lines in the film. Honestly, the her last line in the film where it's like nice try Marty to a degree. It's just <laughs> caps off just how perfect the misunderstanding kind of lie yeah. deception of the angle of the film is just perfect for that film. Which kind of it, it it's also an interesting through line that we'll kind of see play out in these other two movies is like how much the Coens love to play with just kind of circumstance and ignorance and misunderstandings as kind of plot device. Oh my God. Um, Not, not in a cheap way, but like literally building a movie around just the, the humdrum mundane mistakes and misunderstandings people that have in real life, taking these kind of, grandiose um you know cinematic templates for stories and kind of being like well how would this potentially play out in real life with the real life miscommunications and stuff that people experience Mm -hmm. on a daily basis yeah and in some occasions it's like how would people in a world where movies do exist (laughs) respond to some of these outlandish kind of other like an out of the ordinary scenarios Mm -hmm. and What's great about McDormand is I think each one of the films in this trilogy asks that question and she answers it very differently. Yeah. In this one, it's very much like she mainly ignores it until like the very end because she's right. like, why would there be much of an issue? Because in her mind, it's like, I know this is outlandish and crazy that my ex and my my husband's being this way, but like he wouldn't go that far. Right. Well, and she's going to deny it a little yeah. bit. Well, and she's reading everything that happens kind of at face value. Yes. Like, it's, yes. you know, because she doesn't have that extra information to make other judgments, she's just judging it as it appears most obviously, you know, kind of Occam's razoring it. Um, yeah. And that's what results in this very bizarre and chaotic but awesome finale where it's <sighs> her versus somebody she doesn't even know. Um, and the stakes couldn't be higher. I'm going to think about the bullet hole scene so much because I love that when <laughs> Emmett T. Walsh gets stuck in the oh, windowsill right, right, right. and he just starts shooting through the wall. Through the wall. It's like this very thin drywall between <laughs> the walls. It's like, this is so good. Right. It's It just shows how, like, if anyone watching that film, like, back in 84, being like, these guys are going somewhere. Right. It's like, ah, oh, you're being too dramatic. It's like, no, like, they pretty much just take that template and run it. Yeah. Not to the ground, but just up into the stratosphere with some of these, some of the attempts in some of the films they do. I mean, even they're more comedic, like Fargo and Burn After Reading. I mean, Burn After Reading's way more comedic than right. this is. And they even, like, you see templates of that deception and misunderstanding go even into that. With yeah, more original stuff too, and it's. I mean, yeah, Burn After Reading winds up kind of expanding on this movie's 
thematic premise to like almost kind of a nihilistic point yeah um, in, a, in a post 9-11 you know post uh you know counterintelligence yeah. surveillance world in america and taking that advantage and twisting it in a very comedic way right yeah um yeah it's like i mean it's a stunning first outing from two young very inexperienced directors oh yeah um, it's you know a lot of people i think we we love to heap praise and and talk about you know great filmmakers first films you know and and a lot of that is kind of not that they aren't great movies but like i think we apply a lot of meaning to to movies retroactively because they were made by now great directors and this is one of those where it's just like you it's all right there it's all in the soup you can kind of tell like wow there's a lot going on here that yeah, may or may not have all been intentional, but like this is a really special type of movie, especially back then from inexperienced mm. directors. You could show this to somebody who has no idea who the Coens are, but are aware of their films, like mm-hmm. Lebowski, Fargo, and like all their big hits. Show that to them, and they can love it just as much as if they knew if it was the Coens. Mm-hmm. It's just a great film on its own. That, like Andy said, like, you know, nine times out of ten when we talk about old films, there is a little bit of just like, and hey, look, this is where they go from here. But, like, genuinely, if you just cut this off from the rest of the Coen Brothers filmography, it just slaps on its own. Right. It's just such a good time. And same with McDormand. Like, you don't even have to know that she ends up winning three Oscars, like, like years after this film. Nearly, nearly 40 years since this film came out. Yeah. It's just, you can just watch this and be like, she's got it. Mm-hmm. There's something to this that I can't wait to see more of, which you definitely see that in the next one we're going to talk about. Because, you know, in the span between Blood Simple and Fargo, there are, there's actually a Sam Raimi kind of, there's a film that Sam Raimi does with them called Crime Wave, which yeah. apparently is so, <laughs> it does not do well. To the point where I don't think you can really buy this anywhere. I don't think any distributor <laughs> really has yeah. this currently. We've looked. Yes, we have. Uh, there is, you know, they do Miller's Crossing in the late 80s. Well, Raising Arizona. Raising Arizona. I keep, here's the thing is, I know that it's Coen Brothers. It doesn't, yeah, it, it, just, it feels it, like. It throws me off every yeah, time. Yeah, it kind of sticks out. Not in a bad way or anything, no. but it's just, yeah, I never think, or I don't think of that movie when I think Coen Brothers, and I don't think Coen Brothers when I watch that movie. Yeah um and but then, it totally is and yeah. there's a lot of like uh what is it um big lebowski in that movie and yes anyway. I mean, especially even goodman's in it as well yeah but yeah you got raising arizona miller's crossing hudsucker Prozzi. like they've got films going but they're not entirely hitting i think with audiences as well as like you know raising arizona or blood simple does in the 80s so when you get to the late 90s you get fargo and that's the film that basically like I think jump starts McDormand even more. It jump starts well, the Coens yeah, even more. I, they they were kind of all all three of them, the Coens and McDormand were kind of uh yeah, I don't know if indie darling is the right word, but like they were respected um actor or performers or sorry, artists, but but not like huge household names until I think it was um McDormand was nominated for Mississippi Burning in like oh, 87 or right. 89. Yeah. And that was like her 
okay, like I'm on the map, I'm big time. Mm-hmm. They, the Cohen brothers, had not really had that. They were like, okay, no. reputable workmen, directors, did good work, but weren't like huge yeah. in audiences. And I'm, then, yeah, Fargo kind of melds all of their talents into a place where it's like the world pays attention. Yeah, they go from like the scrappy directors that are like doing great films, but they're not just hitting as much with audiences as their first two. And basically, are also we talked about this during our uh, Raimi Dark Darkman trilogy, but like show up at Darkman for five seconds <laughs> yeah. because they're just best friends with Raimi and going right. into going from the scrappy indie directors to the auteur. Like they they become the auteurs that we now know them as mm-hmm. after years and years of just like going back and reanalyzing their filmography before and after the second film in our trilogy, Fargo. Right. Which is arguably, out of the three of these films, the most popular because I can't think of a five-season show that is tied to Burn After Reading. <laughs> oh, you didn't watch the uh, uh, Blood Simple Hulu show? Oh, gosh. I thought that was on Epics. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no this uh, Fargo is undoubtedly there. I mean, it... Mm, mm. Yeah, it, I mean, it's definitely the most well-known and probably most widely liked movie of this trilogy is this your favorite of, of the three? three uh yeah um yeah. i was i think i was surprised most how much i enjoyed burn after reading though i like um, i you'll definitely get into that more because yeah burn i it, it it had a little it had a bit of a slower burn this time for me no pun intended oh, sure uh but yeah I, I mean out of the three of these i I can't not give Fargo, at least in my mind, like a perfect. There's nothing about Fargo I would change. I just really love. I love the fact that Fargo starts with basically what I would consider a proto Safety Brothers character with William H Macy, <laughs> right, right. who is just like you are so enthralled by this man who is making bad decisions left and right. Yeah. And you're like, this guy can't be the protagonist. There's just something about the way that he's handling. There's a way that the film is handling him as a character that doesn't yeah, feel right. He's caught, like, yeah, the film is kind of mocking him the whole time, yes. and, and you can kind of, yeah, he's then, not rootable. And then because, since it's the trilogy, and this is the second film, when Francis McDormand shows up as Marge Gunderson, it all makes sense. Yeah, I had I had forgotten how long the movie goes before she shows up. Um, yeah, I, I think I did a little bit too, but I when I realized how long it was, it only made my anticipation for her showing up <laughs> even more exciting. Yeah. Because when she shows up, it is like, the film was already great to begin with, but then when she shows up, it really just, I think, goes into the stratosphere of, like, the Coens' best shit. Because yeah. she really just, like, she is a good person, 100%. There is nothing about her that just, I mean... She's flawed, I guess, to a degree, but like in in this film where we have for the first thirty minutes we are seeing bad people do bad <laughs> things, you see a genuinely good person through and through, and it's you're worried about them as soon as they get involved. Yeah, well, and it's, she's, um, you know, she's kind of a she's a character who succeeds because of her goodness and her yeah. purity, not not like you know sexual purity or anything like that but no. just like as a person her right, kind of righteousness and goodness and just kind of yeah. mild manneredness um you know is is kind of all a part of her not only charm but but success in her field and in this 
particular case. Yeah, um, the way that Marge is being approached by Francis feels like it is a character that clearly is written for her. Because you can see that, like, if there's any other actress, there's a good chance that you could, that Marge would come off naive. Yeah. She would become almost, you know, ignorant to the world or just the harshness of the world in general. When as, whereas when you see McDormand play Marge, she plays it as a person that is like, she's aware of the bad things that happen in this world. <laughs> she is aware of killings, you know, yeah. high speed chases, you know, robbery she's aware of it all but like she just fully just is like why would you just be a bad person when you could be a nice person yeah it, and it just works in a not in the perfect just mix i think from mcdormand really sells it yeah i mean she's kind of a uh, um other side of the coin to uh, tommy lee jones in no country for old men where like the same thing the yeah. kind of the whole premise of the character is like yeah, she, she totally just doesn't. She can't kind of can't really grapple with the fact that there are people in this world who would just do this awful oh, yeah. shit. But uh, as opposed to Tommy Lee Jones' character, rather than wallowing in that inability to win that philosophical fight, that grappling with the fact that there are people who do that, she's at, at peace with it. You know, she's yeah. she's like, well, I'll just, you know, I'm living the life that I know how to live and mm -hmm. it's a good life and I'm good to people and I help people and people are going to do this stuff and it's awful. But you know what? I'm it's my job to figure out how to make things better. Yeah, um, I work hard. I have a great husband. I'm about to give birth <laughs> in yeah. two months. Like, Well, yeah. And it's it's exemplified in her relationship and how that contrasts yeah. with William H. Macy's relationship with his yes. family. Yeah. Because, I mean, every time you see Norm, who's her husband, um, who's what's that John actor's John Carroll Lynch? Yeah, John Carroll Lynch. Of course I remember that off the top um, of my head. Which I had forgotten he was even in this movie. Oh, I um, love him in this movie. Yeah, he's amazing. He but is the like, ideal husband in like this type of scenario. Oh, yeah, just, yeah. He's just he's just supportive and loving. Like that's, yeah. he's just he is, he is what hilarious. you want from a good husband. <laughs> he's like the flip coin of like something like Gwyneth Paltrow in Seven, where it's like, <laughs> oh, he's fine. Yeah, but like, nothing could happen to don't, him. Don't, don't even think about yeah. touching that man. That man um, <laughs> But it, yeah, it's great because uh, whenever we see him, all of his scenes are with her. We don't yes. see Norm by himself. We yeah. see them together. And like they're even almost all of their scenes are shot, shot in like uh, a two shot, you know, a shot that shows both of them in the frame yeah. Yeah. as opposed to we barely see William H. Macy's uh, uh, Jean. wife, yeah, Jean. Jean. Yeah, yeah. We, we barely see her. And when we do... It's shot reverse shot. They are separated by the camera. Um, Same with his son. His like, son too, his, yeah. And, which and, um, which hilariously plays into what you're talking about because technically we also get a shot that's rarely without her kid in the shot because it's in yeah, her stomach. Yeah. So you have a family that is constantly together in every shot they're in. Right. And then you have a family who always has to be by themselves, <laughs> almost just well, ejected. Yeah, and it's just exemplifying how um, – Gosh, I can't remember William H. Macy's character's name. Um, uh, is it Jerry? Yeah. Is it Jerry? Yeah, I think so. Oh, God. It's like Lundegaard or Lundegaard. something. It's yeah. Lundegaard, yeah. Yeah. He is I mean, great. He, he, oh, Macy is amazing. I, I don't know if I necessarily believe there was a rumor that at one point William H. Macy wanted this so bad he, like, flew to the Coens and said, I will shoot your dog if you don't give me this role, <laughs> just as a joke. But, like, I really hope that's true because this man is clearly fighting for just 
giving one of the best performances in his career yeah. because he he has to hold this film for a good 30 minutes and also be just a reprehensible little worm for yeah. most of it. And it's just because, like, even when you see, like, Buscemi and Peter Stormare, who are also great in this film, yeah, love them in this film as the, the hitmen who are the kidnappers. Right. Who are hired by who are hired by William H Macy to kidnap his wife so he can get money from his father-in-law so he can pay off a bad debt. Yeah, which like, I I love that this movie starts um, with him having already made that arrangement. Yes, there's not yes. like a there's not like a oh he's this you know uh, just normal guy who gets caught up in something mm-hmm. and you sympathize for him and so when he makes that call and hires these guys you understand it's like. No, this guy's just kind of a weaselly asshole who yeah. is trying to take the easy way out um, of a bad situation. And what, um, what will ultimately become like a classic Cohen vibe, especially with their more comedic films or comedic elements, the fact that Jerry shows up in the first conversation is just him apologizing because of a misunderstanding of time, right. where it's like, oh, I thought it was supposed to be here at 8.30. And like, no, Shep said 7.30. And it's like, yeah. oh, that was just, just that goofy, like, that northern like you know hospitality you know midwestern oh, that yeah that kind of yeah the um yeah that north midwestern hospitality is just all over this film and yes the mid- it's it's funny how this movie plays with that i mean the whole movie is i mean i think part of the idea behind all of it is like yeah we're gonna set this in like the most mundane quaint oh yeah lame little place and you know contrast that with the horrible things that are going on but it's like in in jerry you see the falseness of that oh yeah cultural politeness Mm -hmm. in marge you see um kind of how earnestness and goodness can kind of cut through that phoniness yeah and kind of you know she does have all those polite mannerisms and that sort of thing but she's also honest with people and frank mm-hmm. with people in yeah. that very you know minnesotan dakotan oh. uh friendly faced way yes she is honest and and straightforward with people and it, it's just cool to see all these different characters kind of speaking that language but saying entirely different things with it but yeah i i think that's a really cool thing about this movie is how it plays with that cultural place oh yeah it's god i mean it's not it's no surprise watching this because i think this is like the third maybe second or third time i've seen this all the way through and it's not it's hard not to watch this and be like oh yeah like this is this isn't easy like if if someone on fx wants to make the show you could make a show about just thematically just the the hilarious kind of black comedy nature of just like yeah nice people against just bad things happening in like their nice locales and whatnot and with this it is just yeah i going back to mcdormand it is i can't not at this time while watching it especially with a film like this where it's like we've both seen this before so going into it it's like okay i'm curious to see if there's anything new i'm gonna catch this time around Mm -hmm. that like is like i gotta this is now going to be like the scene I think about when I go back to rewatch it. And to me, it's the final scene in the film, which is basically like when Marge gets back after saving the day, <laughs> after after catching the perp, after finding out Jerry who, who he is, basically being the hero. Mm-hmm. And she comes back home to her husband and says nothing about it. It is only talking about 
did he get his painting right, as, a, right. as, as a postage stamp. Yeah. And it is, it is not that she's just like waiting for him to talk about what she did. It is genuinely like it is her job. She did a good thing. She doesn't need the praise for it. She just wants to know how her husband's day was. Yeah. And yeah. that's just a perfect way to cap off what I think is like, if if there's anyone that could say like McDormand's best character is Marge, I would understand. Yeah. Because like it just she really just brings, she brings an Oscar-winning performance in here, which is why she deserved that Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> like she really is just, she she takes the screen by the horns and just like any time after she shows up in her introduction that she's not on screen, it's like this is great, but where's Marge? <laughs> yeah, I, I want her. Yeah, I appreciate that it's a very unshowy performance too i mean obviously the like accent is a big kind of like flag like oh this is interesting and fun and different but like yeah there's no marge screaming tearfully at the top of her lungs at somebody or whatever it's just she's just a lady doing her job and a nice lady at that like (laughs) the only time she screams is when she tells peter stormare to freeze right because she's yelling over the sound of a wood chipper with a human being going through it but even then she's not even heard because (laughs) you can't hear her yeah, yeah she's not even loud enough to go over the wood chipper right it's so good just to you know, I mean, it's not like, again, we have seen, especially more recently, films where you can just have a degenerate as the lead and just go for it. And it works. It just commits to it and really mm-hmm. just like, this guy is the lead. This is this is what you're going to have to deal with. There are going to be some actual good people, but this is not the person you're going to be following. You could just, this film could just all be about Jerry and his perspective. However, thankfully it isn't because yeah. I feel like you be get a lot that, less interesting. Yeah, you get a lot more dimension having more of a like i guess quote unquote just like angelic good person yeah that is just you know i mean you you can't go wrong with the fact that like this is also such a good cast like mm-hmm. this is just like i mean buscemi at this point i what i could even think of what would be his breakout role like it, uh, it might it be reservoir dogs it might be but at the same time like it could be that it could be this like because i think of like because, again, and isn't this the reason why in Big Lebowski the whole big joke is that Donnie can't talk? Because in Fargo, he literally he talks has, too like, much. He has yeah. like 150 lines right. while Stormare has like well, eight. Well, there was a – yeah, I mean, I think it might have been a little bit of a response to like the press and critical reaction to Fargo was how much his character yes. talked. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so now we're going to like intentionally de-emphasize him mm-hmm. just to be cute about it. Apparently Siskel and Ebert, apparently Siskel, when they saw this film, basically like turned to Ebert and was like, this is why we review films. Like they loved out the gates that this is one of the best films of 96. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't argue with that. I honestly don't know all the, like what was considered the best of that year, but like Fargo just, it's just, yeah. I mean, again, to add more about the Coen's aspect of it, like this is not a film that is extremely flashy. Oh, and at, it's at like all. It's almost the opposite of flashy. Yeah, I un- mean, it's uh, Roger Deakins, of course, yeah. doing the cinematography and like fucking dunes. <laughs> right. The the kind of pop idea of Roger Deakins that we know today is like yeah, Dune, um, Blade Runner, Blade Runner, like these just. You know, com- computer desktop worthy, screensaver oh, yeah. worthy oh, yeah. kind of still images of people in large expanse places. And there's like a couple shots like that in this movie. Yes. But it's all, this movie is very locked off, very mm-hmm. kind of, you know, conversations are very like shot reverse shot, kind of, it's it's mundane, it's effective, but 
mundane ways of framing very mundane scenarios. Would this out of the three of these films, would this be considered the least stylish? And I don't mean this in the bad way. In terms of like what it's doing camera work wise, in terms of like the shot um, composition, because like in my mind when I think of like how the st- the most stylish they get with this film is when the killings happen on the road, yeah, and basically any sex scene because the sex scenes like <laughs> kind of get intensified uh-huh. and get sh- and get cut really fast, but also like in a really I mean, in compared to the rest of the film because the rest mm-hmm. of the film again like we talked about is like very very just like you know chill not overdoing anything right it is just like it's the perfect amount of you know passion and effort while also just keeping that pace yeah just as mundane as everything else yeah yeah i mean it's i think this this movie has a very specific style to it like i I would it's a very but yeah it's not necessarily what you'd think of when you say like a stylish movie it's not overly visually expressive um it's kind of wild to think too that like Raimi has Raimi has this too yeah he has a simple plan a simple plan is basically and apparently it's like Fargo yeah because I think both both Fargo and Simple Plan are kind of in the the ideas of like rumors of like you know because Simple Plan is about finding a plane crash full with money and then with this is like the the rumor about you know maybe the wood chipper or like someone getting (laughs) shot in the middle of the road and like kind of left for dead and then yeah because like yeah, this film also starts off with a based off of a true story that is not true at all. Right, they just said it to yeah. add intrigue. Yeah, just to make sure people were invested because they thought people weren't going to be invested in the silliness, like the right. sillier aspects. Yeah, which in all honesty, the sillier aspect of this is by far the wood chipper. The wood uh, chipper, the, yeah, the wood chipper's great. I love that. It's the most iconic. But yeah, it's the most like. Oh, this is a Coen Brothers moment. Like yeah. this is this is bleak and silly and yeah. Another Coen Brothers moment that I love is when Marge goes to the scene for the first time and just goes like, no, I just got to barf. But she just has <laughs> yeah. to like, she has to fight morning sickness while right, looking right. at like three dead bodies. Yeah. And it's not the dead bodies making her sick. It's, it's just morning sickness. sickness. It's, um, um, it's, but yeah, I, I love all those exchanges where it's just, just, you know, Northerners talking, having little nothing conversations just being polite to each other just jerry and the plates it's yeah i think what also i loved in this film again because i remember those conversations but the fact that like he is you you know as an audience member he is lying about the plates he is trying to get he's basically trying to screw over a company uh-huh. and is clearly trying to use his northern hospitality and <laughs> nice and to basically confused this guy is on the phone with and this guy will not budge and so there's like yeah. three scenes involving these plates and it's just so funny to see william h macy just talk himself into a circle right and ultimately just have to hang up on this yeah. man yeah uh and i'm glad you brought up the uh the wood chipper scene though because um my entire life my dad has referred to steve buscemi as chip because of this movie oh that's funny that's um, like i've just funny. always known him as chip and he's always called uh francis mcdormand brainerd brainerd oh wow she's from brainerd yeah, she she's from a smaller town near fargo where this all happens paul buddy and babe the big blue ox yeah gosh oh my lord every time you see every time you see that statue it's like ah, oh, it's so oh, ominous yeah. for no reason <laughs> yeah i don't know why it is but yeah i two two for three at this point like you can't go wrong with blood simple and you absolutely can't go wrong with fargo especially with francis mcdormand because there's a reason why this is her first oscar 
She absolutely deserves it. And it's kind of wild. It takes like 20 years to get to her next Oscar win, but it's very well deserved. But before that Oscar win, like Andy said, 12 years after Fargo, now that the Coen brothers are now the beloved auteurs that are award winning, they make a bunch of shit in between this and their next film. But I mean, Big Lebowski, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, of course, and then the kind of zenith being right before this movie, No, uh, Country, for no Country for Old Men. Which is still, this has nothing to do with Francis McDormand, but I still can't believe that this was shot at the same time as uh, There Will Be Blood. And like they basically had to not shoot one of the days <laughs> because they did the oil rig scene, from right. the, and it fucked up the sky. <laughs> so like we can't shoot because fucking they're shooting over there. Yeah, right. And it's funny to think that like those two films that are also very synonymous with one another i think in terms of like release yeah it came out around the same time similar setting similar characters and themes yeah but yeah you got no country for old men which is like i think in my opinion it this is not a hot take whatsoever it'd be my favorite cohen oh yeah by far for me we're basic bitches over here i mean but there's a reason why yeah it's it's an amazing movie yeah but it's also a reason why this third film in our trilogy maybe didn't quite make the splash uh, that yeah. Fargo did. Because another thing, too, that I think needs to kind of be used as a precursor talking about this is when it comes to the Coens and comedy, it really was an asterisk in terms of how well it did, especially when it came to critics and audiences. Because while Fargo did great, right. Fargo had a great award season and whatnot, Big Lebowski, which comes after this, uh, tanks. Yeah, literally takes years for this film to actually be considered good because people are like, what the fuck is this? This is the guys that made Fargo. Yeah. And from that point forward, after that, they go into Oh Brother, We're Out There, which I think is a perfect mix of their comedy as mm-hmm. well. And so like they keep having this almost this constant battle with their films. Or, like When they want to commit more to a comedic idea, they start to like almost divide their fans or divide the right. audiences. So like Andy said, when they do No Country for Old Men, and their next film is our last film in our trilogy, Burn After Reading, it really divides people. Yeah. It's, it's weird because it's like they apparently wrote No Country for Old Men at the same time as Burn After Reading. Yeah. They basically alternated. Right. It right. almost like was a palate cleanser for I'm each sure. other to yeah. do that. And then in 2007, I think it was regarded by the blacklist as like one of the best unmade scripts at the time. What? Like, because there's the blacklist in Hollywood where it's like, right. it's basically like best unmade scripts. Like, they're out in the ether, but like, no one's made it yet. Right. I mean, which it's, was the, what bur- was, burn after oh, burn after Because, yeah, like, yeah, no control men at that point, you know, just completely kills it. And yeah. Well, at that point, you kind of, you, in terms of burn after readings release, after no country for old men, you kind of ceased to be from a public perspective, the Coen brothers in your wide variety of talents and genres and that sort of thing. And you become the guys who directed no country for old men. And so people start to expect, Oh, that kind of Mm -hmm. lofty, highbrow existential philosophical stuff. There's a reason why so many directors are kind of like, I would say not necessarily frustrated with Spielberg, but like, are just like envious of the fact that that man can just do any genre he wants. Yeah. And no one will be like, you know, that's not a Spielberg film. Right. Like, and there's so many directors who wanted to kind of have like, I want to do this genre on top of this genre on top of this genre. And it really is a mixed bag. Yeah. Because people are like, but you're that guy. 
You can't be that guy too. You can't yeah. be multifaceted. Like, yeah, right. The, the amount of directors that have literally been like, "I want to do this," and they're like, "But you made this one great film. Why don't you want to make that great film <laughs> right. five more times?" Yeah, Spielberg's Spielberg has kind of an impenetrable name. Yeah, um, it, which is really interesting because he's made some not great movies, mm-hmm. a lot of not which, great movies, which I think is why with the Coens, especially now and around this time, probably too, is almost the Tarantino approach, which is. I'm the namesake. We're the namesake. Yeah. You could sell this film just on the fact that it's a Cohen's film yeah. in the cast. So let's just do that. And with Burn After Reading, holy fuck the cast in this film. Yeah. This cast is like incredible. It has no right being as good as it is. <laughs> like, let's, I mean, going down the list again, Francis McDormand is one of the leads. Right. I would say the there are like four leads it's an ensemble it is and an ensemble you're film. bouncing around to different characters yes kind of in equal measure but yeah i mean francis mcdormand is kind of one of three biggest ones um yes. you've got george clooney of course john malkovich john malkovich brad pitt tilda swinton richard jenkins god. and in a small role jk simmons jk is small but pivotal role. oh my god i mean if there's anything that i would say to like was because like when I first saw Burn After Reading, I don't know how you were when you first saw it, but I don't think I liked I, it. I've never seen the whole thing you until have, now. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Because when I first saw Burn After Reading, I think I was like most people, where I was like, I don't get why this film is like this, <laughs> and I don't know if I like it that much. Because yeah. again, like most people going into it, when they think of a Coen Brothers comedy, it's probably oh Big Lebowski, or more likely Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Yeah. Because that's not, it's not an overwhelming, like, more it's, whimsical. Yes. Yeah. But it's a very funny, very funny film. Yeah. yeah so, oh, like, yeah. And so people, when they think of, like, oh, that's funny, therefore all their films should be kind of, like, this kind of funny. <laughs> Cut to Burn After Reading, which is just full of wit and just, like, very dry and cynical at times. Yeah. The fact that, like, one of the first big moments of, like, in my opinion, comedy is, like, I have a drinking problem. Fuck you. You're Mormon. <laughs> like it's just like the way that John Malkovich says it like that yeah. is so funny, but it's also like it's not a funny line. It's just the it's just the approach. Right. And that's how this film I think differs from a lot of their other efforts is the fact that it's like it's all about that approach. Yeah. Well it's also this is an interesting kind of not obviously many movies were made between this and Fargo, but it's a, it's an interesting contrast in terms of this trilogy in that this is a movie built on and showcasing several big performances by big names doing kind of crazy kooky antics and fargo is more all these people playing a very specific type of person very kind of Mm -hmm. all part of this humdrum world of of north dakota you know um and uh in this movie it's like you've got like every every big name in this movie is playing a kind of ridiculous archetypal character I mean, I will say, because, again, I think McDormand is great in this film. I think Mm -hmm. she's great in all three of these films. And I think it's fun to watch her play in this film a very uh, insecure, vapid person who really wants, like, who basically wants a Hollywood film of a life. Yeah. Whether it's in relationships, whether it's just in general her life. Yeah. She's incredibly insecure and, as a result, vain, but also not to the point of being, like, you know you, you still empathize with her and yes. understand her but her motives are almost entirely like superficial yeah because basically in blood simple you have her playing a woman in her late tr- 20s who's trying to get out of a relationship and try to move on with her life and go to a different step 
you have in Fargo a woman who is very solid in her relationship, rock solid to the point where like she feels like she's got the perfect life with her husband. Yeah, just very at peace with the world around her. Yeah. And, yeah. and then you have a woman who is the complete opposite. Yeah. For reading. We have a woman who is afraid of aging. The world's passing her by. Yes, who believes that her time is out and that there's nothing else she can do about it. Yeah. She acts like she doesn't she's, want to be alone. Yeah, she acts like she has a week to live sometimes. <laughs> like, but in Linda Litsky. Yeah, Linda Litsky, so fucking good. The, yeah. her, I mean, the fact that her introduction scene, because again, like the other two films, the introduction scenes are like kind of very much key in terms of like just not only how these character, how her character plays into the story, but just how much, how just how the effort that she's going to put into it. Whereas like in Blood Simple. It's like an interaction with Ray in a car where they both admit to themselves they like each other. Yeah. Really great scene with the both of them. You have in Fargo, you have the introduction, which is like seeing the paintings in their house, her waking up early, being super nice, going to work, and just having that perfect kind of Norman Walkwell kind of situational home. Yeah. And then you have in this where she is at a plastic surgeon trying to figure out <laughs> what her procedures are going to be. And it's, it's, she's such a fun time. And again, it's like Andy said, one hell of an ensemble. I mean, I, we have to talk about Clooney at some point because. Oh yeah. Clooney, Clooney in this film is fascinating because the first thing I had ever heard about this film, even before seeing it was that pretty much every single role in this film, excluding Tilda, apparently was written for the actors that ultimately ended okay, up. Okay, yeah. So Pitt was Pitt's character. Apparently, Pitt's character with hairstyle and everything was inspired by an old commercial he did <laughs> yeah. that they thought was great. Right. Um, same with Francis. Uh, I think Jenkins and Malkovich were pretty mm-hmm. much written for that. But <laughs> I, if I remember correctly, I remember George saying that when he got the script and the Cohen said this character was written specifically for you, he did not take that as a compliment, <laughs> and he was very confused. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As to like, why well, is yeah. this the character that reminds me of you? Well, it's <laughs> I mean, it's kind of interesting because like all the big names in this are playing not against type, but like very much. I mean, with the exception of maybe maybe McDormand, like playing to the kind of absolute worst version of their type. Oh yeah, like oh, George Clooney God. is just kind of this. I mean, he's. Yes, he's suave with the ladies and, you know, quick on his feet and that sort of thing. But he's also extremely paranoid and, like, <laughs> beneath the surface, surface, like a very unappealing, confused, uh, you know, aimless person. You've got Brad Pitt, who is playing, yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a fit and uh, energetic and lively dude, but he's also a fucking idiot. He's the dumbest man in this um, entire film, and I yeah, love it. Tilda Swinton is, like, the ice queen to the zenith like you know the... oh my god and the fact that she's like a she's she's a doctor right yeah it's funny she's as just hell. this cold-hearted empty shell of a person i think it's she's specifically a pediatrician which is <laughs> right fucking which funny. is hilarious which because is... she's just the one time we see her working with kids it's yeah. like why do you it's like those you know we all remember a, a teacher growing up. Yeah. It was like, why do you do this? Because you, you to be seem to hate here. kids. Yeah. yeah. The one scene you see with a kid as a pediatrician is like, you better listen to me or I'm going to send your mother out and we'll deal with it together. It's like, what? Yeah, I don't think you can say that. God, it's so, yeah. It's, it again, it shows just how good McDormand is because out of a, out of a crew like this, she shines just as bright as everybody else. Mm-hmm. In, in an era where it's like, 
Pitt and Clooney are like at another level than most of the people on this yeah. cast because of Oceans, because of practically any film they've done up until this point. Right. And you have, I mean, Malkovich being fucking John Malkovich. <clears throat> like, it's yeah. to He's... a point, yeah, where it's like even people probably watching Burn After Reading who haven't seen a lot of Malkovich have probably heard enough about John Malkovich that they know right. that he is just doing him in the best way possible. To Tilda being Tilda, and then you get to Frances, who is just like, at this point in her career, yeah, just doing herself, like genuinely, like just killing the empathy, yeah. the the amount of com, com like comedic timing. Gosh, I mean, there, the scene where <laughs> the scene where Brad Pitt's tr calling at like two a.m. trying to get money for the disc they found, and he <laughs> sounds so sinister. Yeah, and then Frances McDormand just comes and starts to like threatening John Malkovich <laughs> out of nowhere, and it's like. Oh my God, it's so good. Yeah, they're a great duo. Um, yeah, uh, Linda and Chad. Yes, and it's <laughs> again and again. This movie made me think about all this. This movie, I mean, even more so than Fargo, kind of goes back to uh, the Coens' roots with Blood Simple in like in that this whole movie is people not knowing what's going on and yeah. not knowing how to deal with the scenario that's given to them and assuming way too much about the scenario. I mean, it's, Ch Chad and Linda's whole motivation is that they think they have their hands on this top secret government intel that they just stumbled upon, which just, which is just the like ramblings of uh, John Malkovich's memoir. Yeah, It's a shitty memoir from John Malkovich. Who's like, it's an just like ex a collection of dates and things. Yeah. And they take a look at this CD and are like, this has got to be like, classified intel and so they basically try and like blackmail the u.s government into giving them money or whatever they want and, and the russians and all it does is put them in the crosshairs of shadowy organizations that's so good it's yeah. it's so funny it's it's funny to have like basically two planet fitness employees <laughs> basically trying to be spies or yeah. espionage agents. basically make up their own espionage story on accident yeah and which ultimately ends in the film being like, why the fuck? Like, JK's part in this film is by far like the part I was excited to see again the most. And it's only two scenes, but like when he shows up in that film, it's basically him just being like, wait, how, why the fuck does this happen? Why oh, this? yeah. It's, it, He's the whole like thesis of the movie yeah. is like that. Yeah. None of this that you think that you're consuming your life with really matters or nobody cares about and yeah it's, everybody's it's, too uninformed to be making decisions about this yeah it's it's basically a film where everyone thinks they're the protagonist <laughs> yeah. it really is just a film where like and the one person who puts it all together per se like the see the agents are like what no this doesn't make any sense it doesn't matter make to sure them it's it all seems done. so random that yeah they they don't even do anything about it they're just like well all right uh, tidy things up and what did we learn from this i don't know i think it's, right. yeah it's it's great to see kind of like a very satirical look at like you know post 9-11 you know very surveillance heavy you know patriot act kind of world where like people are worried about their phones being tapped and they're worried about <laughs> yeah. what the government's tied to and then you just have a version of the government that just couldn't give half a shit right what you're doing which is like Almost like this is like the ideal to a degree. Yeah. But yeah. also like it was cool about the Coens too is even though they're like very comedic in how they handle things, it's also like they, they still have like an intensity to them, the government, because basically like at a certain point in the film, when a certain character dies, 
they basically say like, oh yeah, just like burn the body. Yeah. Don't let anyone know. Like, oh just, well, it's yeah. They treat human lives like nothing, which also seems pretty on like seems pretty obvious what they're trying to say there. Yeah, too. it's just like it's still it's just a casualty. It's the uh, yeah the callousness of the powers that be, and the fact that they're so powerful and so unconcerned that like they can't be bothered to even mm-hmm. look into this or you know let alone do the right thing yeah i also think if there's because like this is probably the second time i've seen this through and since it's the first time full time through because do you knew the brad pitt scene was going to happen you've seen the closet was, scene yeah yeah because i was wondering what you thought about that because to me when i first saw this film that was a shock well see the funny the, thing is i had never seen um you know what actually happens his actual yeah the result um fucking hilarious what i had seen was i mean that the the frame of brad pitt his face sticking out of the clothes in the closet with that strained grin on his face trying to you know make a good face for the camera whatever um that is a meme in kind of movie circles and that that frame floats around a lot you know i like follow a page on facebook that's like um photos that immediately precede unfortunate events disasters yeah and that's always one of them i had somehow all these years never actually seen what happens immediately at that frame but i had just presumed what happened after that frame based on the other frames that get posted on pages like that i'm like okay i know what happens here this is a this is a joe pesci situation uh al pacino situation Mm -hmm. um it just and because what's funny too is like going through this film the second time i did not realize how heavily foreshadowed that scene is mm. until like because like when i remember because like again it was completely shocked to me until i saw it this time and just how every fucking conversation <laughs> he has in public george clooney he constantly brings up how he's never discharged his weapon <laughs> right, <action. yeah. laughs> and then i went holy fuck they literally just keep beating into your head yeah. because this man is so in love with himself and so insecure that he has to yeah. constantly brag about this <laughs> that ultimately this is what's going to bring his downfall is the fact that he can't control his own paranoia. Right, right. Oh, my God. And he, the fact that after that scene, you know, Chad just being a complete dumbass and clearly, like, has nothing in his wallet, mm. his suit's used, so he tore out the tie. <laughs> and and George Clooney's like, you're a spook. And right. Like, oh, my God. Yeah. It's so good. It's Again, I would say this is probably my least favorite of the three. Not because it's a bad film. I do. Just, I think it's an acquired taste yeah. in terms of like what you're interested in. Because to me, like I enjoy this film, but like probably won't rewatch it for a little bit. Sure. Like, out of all the Coen Brothers films, I love to rewatch like uh, No Country, True Grit. I'd watch yeah. Blood Simple and probably Fargo again. But like Burn After Reading would probably be at the back end of that. I think this one could really. I mean, I, I love this movie, but I Good, think it yeah. could really, um, you know, grow on me with time and be something that I kind of mm-hmm. regularly dip my toes back into just because it's such a it's such a fun, demented little oh. fairy tale of a movie where mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, just all these random, co- like, not coincidences, but circumstances befalling these people. And it's it's just a lot of fun. I, yeah, w- I, I think if, if you love the Coen Brothers movies... If, like us, your favorite is No Country for Old Men and, like, you watched this movie after it came out and weren't super impressed by it, I'd say give it another shot. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Especially maybe with the lens of all, like, the wide array of other movies they've mm-hmm. made. And just, yeah. I think there's a lot to appreciate here that's, it's very much not No Country Coen Brothers, but it mm-hmm. is 
still them very much doing what they've always succeeded at as storytellers. Yeah, it's basically taking a lot of the absurdity they would have put into like oh oh country or big lebowski in terms of the scenarios and or like even like the dream sequence of big lebowski it's like taking all the effort and energy into that and just putting it into a pretty grounded stark film but really just tying up that approach and the writing because Mm -hmm. like every line just matters the way that the lines are said are just like clearly like clearly supposed to be funny even though whatever they're saying is not funny like again like the first scene where malkovich is basically being down like demoted demoted yeah like the first in my opinion the first funny thing that really happens is basically like well i thought we were supposed to have a conversation before we do this or like and and the guy's like well yeah this this is the conversation conversation. in the way that it's said it just has like a little bit of a comedic twang to it that is like so deadpan. This film is so fucking deadpan. Oh yeah. Which I think this is This might like, be like the most British of their films. I think so. I honestly think cuz like when I think of like the co- comedy in their other stuff, especially like something like say more recently like Ballad of Buster Scruggs where like a lot of that yeah. comedy is pretty a little more slapsticky yeah, overt. And, yeah. Yeah. This kind of weirdly enough I'm just now thinking of this. This kind of feels without the f- you know flash and whiz bang editing and stuff kind of feels like an edgar wright movie i was gonna say in terms of the tone it has energy of mark mcdonough in the script oh sure yeah mcdonough like you can see like because i like you could have like like again you have something like mcdonough's category of like in bruges or like even some like three billboards where it's Uh like that's not a comedic film but it's just certain lines are said oh yeah in such a comedic way or it's the response to said lines it's yeah it's off kilter enough to be like this is silly gosh the fact that like the finale is literally just J.K. describing what happens between John Malkovich and Richard Jenkins. Yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just, the Collins are very uh, multifaceted, and I it makes sense as to why it's like, it has, there's moments where it's hard for them to get films made. Right. Where it's like, of course, they're going to like, if they want to make a fucking anthology Western film, of course, Netflix is going to pick that up because they say, yeah. hey, look, the Coens made a Netflix film. Yeah. Or the fact that if Joel wants to do Macbeth with Denzel and his <laughs> wife, fucking Apple's right. going to pick that up. But, like, at, at this point, I think, especially with the Coens and just McDormand in their films, it's pretty clear that, like, it doesn't matter what the genre is. I think it just, they just know exactly how to. It definitely helps that they've been married for so long. Right, right. Like, nearly 40 years. Like, it seems like McDormand and Joel and Ethan, they just have a wavelength that they just know how to work with each other mm-hmm. perfectly to the point where, like, you, there's so many other performances that are just Joel as a director or a film that is could be a part of the sampler if you want to dig a little deeper with, like, Hail Caesar. It's a very small yeah. role that McDormand has, but she, very memorable, very funny film. Right. Would you, do you like... So do you like this more than Hail Caesar? I guess is the question because like, uh, Hail Caesar's kind of. I have not too. seen Hail Caesar. Oh, you should. Yeah. That's um, a good one. Actually, Hail Caesar is um, part of a a different Cohen related trilogy. Oh, it is. Um, yes, that's that right. Has kind of. I don't. I don't recall exactly how much this was intended by the Coens or if this was kind of labeled by critics and fans, but um, it's what they call the Numbskull trilogy. Um, which is which actually uh, includes Burn After Reading and is actually a collection of four films 
mm-hmm. but they call it a trilogy anyway because it's a trilogy of numbskulls. So, of course, they're uh, going to get the number wrong. So, yeah, yeah, so it's four movies. I can't remember uh, the other two. I think Oh Brother Where Art Thou is one of them. I thought it was Intolerable Cruelty. Oh, Intolerable Cruelty, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, this and Hail Caesar. Um, and so... That would be, you know, honestly, we could do that one sometime and just kind of float past burn after reading a little bit because we've already talked about it. But Mm -hmm. it's it's just funny how um, things overlap. Speaking of that numbskull trilogy, go back to Clooney. My favorite gag, I think I've told you, I told you over text, my favorite bit in this film (laughs) is the dildo throne. Yeah, right. The fact that like Clooney's character, who is just such a paranoid, just messy (laughs) man who is clearly so insecure with his own life that he's literally cheating he is cheating on the woman he's cheating on his wife with (laughs) like he's just constantly sleeping with as many people that want to as well and he just treats it like a normal day every time every time he has extramarital like he just every time he has sex he's got well i better go for a run run, yeah i gotta get at least five miles and he's allergic to shellfish he's just so he's so condescending and just so full of himself but like Throughout the film, early on the film, you see him going to Lowe's to pick up some stuff. He's building something <laughs> in his basement. He won't show his wife. And then ultimately, he reveals it to be apparently a present for his wife, which is a dildo throne, <laughs> which is basically just a seat with a hole in the middle, and then a dildo comes through the yeah. <laughs> You like, what, is it you recline or you push your legs out? And you push it, your legs on, it goes up. Uh, protrudes the dildo. I mean, again. Just to show how good the Coens are, it is complete silence. It is just the sound. <laughs> the creaking of, of the wood the and squeak, metal moving. The squeakiness of the chair with yeah. the, oh my God. And just Florence's McDormand's. <gasps> yeah, she's like horrified but tantalized all at once. Because I think in the trailer for this film, they do show her re- reaction to that scene, but you don't, you don't know, know what, what she's reacting so to. So you see the film and it's <laughs> literally just like George Clooney being like, I can make. Basically, I can make a dildo machine with $100 rather than yeah. $1,000. And it's like, of course, you're just this self-absorbed. You're just going <laughs> to... Right. Oh, my God. But, yeah. it it It's it's a good sampler to have these three films, mainly because, you know, not only is it a great introduction to the Coens in terms of, like, just how multifaceted they are, but in terms of just, like, McDormand as an actress and how, like, you can basically take a lot of the effort in the... Just, just the variety that McDormand puts into these films, and then just go watch her work with Anderson. Go watch her work yeah. with, you know, Cameron Crowe. You can go watch her work with any other director, Martin McDonough for sure. Right. And just see that, like, even in a film, even in something like Transformers Three, <laughs> where she's just like a a government agent uh-huh. who just shows up for a single film. Like, clearly, this is not a film where anyone's gonna, like, you know. <laughs> you know give her any kind of like praise upon it yeah they're not gonna like you know say like oh mcdormand didn't put enough effort into this performance of dark of the moon (laughs) but she still like i mean brings still brings it just enough reverence to be like she's trying but is not also like holding her breath yeah (laughs) she's not like expecting to be like a mainstay or something in this and it's just such a good this is such a good trio to get us back into the swing of things because it's just very three very odd films in the best way that really just show, again, why we love movies. Just how yeah. varied one set of directors can be, and like how varied a single actor can be. Yeah, well, and I think this is a great um, collaborative relationship to look at in film. Yes. I mean, I I would put 
the Coen brothers and Francis McDormand up there with, you know, mm-hmm. the great director actor collaborators of all time. You know, yeah. they're Hitchcock and Jimmy Stewart. You're John Ford and John Wayne, mm-hmm. uh, Scorsese and De Niro. You know, like they are that versatile in what they do together and the ways that they, you know, that the Coens choose to use McDormand and the way that McDormand elevates the characters that they write for her. Yeah. Um, they could, you know, the Coen brothers could cast her in whatever they wanted in whatever kind of movie they wanted and make something entirely new and fresh and exciting. And yeah. I would be drooling to see it again with the film that comes after burn up the reading that has McDormand in there with Hail Caesar. Like mm-hmm. she can be in there for a solid 10 minutes Yeah, and you're just like, God damn, I'm glad she's here. <laughs> yeah. Like she just ends up at the point that burn after reading happens even before then, but just like after that it even just solidifies the fact that you see francis mcdormand in something you're going to pay attention to what she's doing at yeah. least or just interested to what because like i mean literally like an isle of dogs she's a narrator but right, her voice right. is so fucking soothing yeah. <laughs> she's so good as a narration kind of character like a narration key yeah. and it's it's so much fun just to see how many different directors she works with but it, it like andy said it's definitely you pay attention when she's working with Joel or working with both Joel and Ethan. Yeah. I, I'm, I'll be really interested to see how long before they, the three of them work together again. Yeah. I don't, I, um, cause currently I don't think, I mean, obviously Joel and Francis work together on, and Macbeth. Um, yes. They do have a film in development. I the Coens do. I think I couldn't they find do. anything on there. I thought they're writing the Scarface remake. Oh, writing but not directing. Because I think I thought Luca Guanino was going to direct. Oh, it, right. And the Coens right, were going to yeah. write it, which is that's a wow, what a combo. And if that happens, that's a fucking trilogy right there. <laughs> like the amount of different versions of that fucking story. Oh yeah, right. Gosh, from the original to a Coen Brothers written Luca Guanino film. Yeah, yeah. Which can you imagine? Is like from <laughs> from the director that brought you. Uh, call me by your name and the writers of burn after reading hell caesar Fargo. like yeah what the fuck is this scarface. yeah scarface yeah but i i don't think um mcdormand has anything officially announced on her slate either i don't think so no um so they're both kind of kind of open i gotta say probably for mcdormand the combination of covid plus winning an oscar yeah, prob- probably yeah. helps she's like yeah, take, take, a, a, take a break, break. Yeah. enjoy life a little yeah. bit and probably, Study up. Yeah, and probably same with the Coens, just because I know Ethan... I mean, Joel and Ethan, I think, over the years have done a little bit more of, like, they write stuff and they kind of give it to other people. Yeah, or I they'll mean, produce a lot of stuff. Yeah, I think the most notorious recently, in like the last, like, 10 or so years, is, like, Suburbicon, George Clooney's directed right, film that they, right. they both writ- written, wrote, and I've never seen. <laughs> I, <laughs> I saw it. I, I was not Im- very impressed. Yeah. So I think they've they've done. It seems like they might do more in the future of just like their co-writing. They yeah. write the script and then they might give it to somebody else to do, depending on what else they want to do. And also, I wouldn't be surprised. Cause I don't think Ethan's really done much by himself directing wise. So I assume no. Joel might do other stuff. As yeah. Well. And Ethan might produce. But yeah, that's the uh, Cohen McDormand sampler. <laughs> We, I'm sure we'll do more samplers in the future. We we um, have more. We, we have could more. Do. Yeah, already talked about. Yeah, but this um, is this is a good kind of precedent to stand like yeah, to set. Good so, little template for yeah. future ideas, like like we have our our rise of um, mm-hmm. uh, episodes where yes, we, we kind of look up look at how how directors come to be and come to be known. So yeah, uh, a sampler can be a good way of looking at various different parts of of mm-hmm. artists' filmographies. Yeah. 
but speaking of, you know, for the future, our next thing is not going to be a sampler. Our right. next episode is not going to be a rise. <laughs> our next sampler is also not going to be super silly. Actually, our next trilogy is going to be very, very nerdy. Because yes. there is something I don't think I've brought up yet on this podcast. And it's been four months, kind of a little over five, almost five since I've started my little journey. <laughs> Last year... Without telling Andy, because I, I think need... I think I hinted at this in the first episode of this year. Probably you, yes. When you I might. asked you to be, yes, uh, yeah, yes. So, uh, both Andy and I are now. It's not just Andy, because <laughs> you know if you listen to like one of our best of the year, Andy brings up a Gundam film, right? Considered Gundam that was Hathaway two years ago. Yeah, yeah, as one of his favorite films of the year. And at that time, I was like, I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. Right. He's like, don't get watch. this weeb shit out of here while I go watch my Your Name or whatever. Yeah. While I go watch Evangelion. Right. Like, that's yeah. any better <laughs> in a weeb sense. But, like, since then, I have now caught up to an extent. Yeah. I am now a Gundam fan, just like Andy is. And because of that, and we think, you know, a good thing to push you know more of the stuff that we would love people to watch and also just yeah. talk about the oddity of things – we are tackling in the first episode in May the Mobile Suit Gundam trilogy. Yeah. We are talking about the three compilation films <laughs> that basically takes a nearly 50-episode series from the late 70s and basically turns it into seven eight-hour films. Yeah, yeah. Well, Almost. not not seven no, eight-hour films, sorry. but yes. three films totaling about seven yes. or eight hours. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I was not. Yeah, trust me. We're not doing that. Yes. Yeah. We have three films that we're going to cover. Uh, it's Mobile Suit Gundam 1 is, gosh. It's is just it? called Mobile Suit Gundam 1. Good. And then Mobile Suit Gundam 2 is the Soldiers of Soldiers Sorrow. Sorrow. And mm-hmm. then Mobile Suit Gundam 3 is the Encounters in Space. Correct. Yeah. Yes, All early 80s. He, You didn't see this, but Andy looked at me like he was doing a quiz and was testing me on this. <laughs> and I he raised eyebrows. Yes. I was like, oh, God. Will he falter? Yes. But. Basically, we're going to talk about a series that, I mean, I've actually seen all the way through in, mm-hmm. in televised form. He is he is only in episodic form. He has seen just the films, but we're going to talk about just... I've seen, yeah, disparate episodes of the yeah. series. And then, yeah, I've, I've seen the whole trilogy before. That's how I got into Gundam. Mm-hmm. Whereas you got into Gundam through the, yeah, the televised yeah. anime. And yes. so now we're, we're going through the trilogy together. And we're, we're talking about basically, in all honesty... The trilogy that pretty much starts a lot of people's love of Gundam as a franchise, yeah, and as an as an intellectual property, because while a lot of people, I think now have probably seen the full series at the time these films came out, this was the way people got into Gundam. Yeah, it was so, not super successful. So we're not forcing you to watch these three films, but we are <laughs> telling you if you are interested. Yeah, all three of these films are available on Netflix, and right. we're going to go into Go deep. do your homework before yes. our next episode. We're going to do deep, deep dives deep into dives. talking about this because we both are little, know a little too much yeah. about these things. Yeah. But we're this, excited to talk yeah. about. This would be like, this will be similar to like if we did a MCU trilogy. Yes. Where yes. that kind of nerding out and deep diving and that sort of thing. Or basically like when we did the Raimi Spider-Man and we talked yeah. about little comics thing here and there. <laughs> right, right. Like basically we're just going to talk about something that we both love and we'd be talking about just how iconic <laughs> these yeah. this, this kind of franchise and series ends up becoming. Yeah. And not, so not our, it's not our uh, first anime trilogy because we did do the films of goro miyazaki but mm-hmm. it would be 
our first and potentially our only um compilation film trilogy yes where it's compiled footage from a previous work yeah and that'll be gosh that'll be i think the may 13th that sounds right i think that's yeah i think it's may 13th yeah so tune in on may 13th when we do the mobile suit gundam trilogy but until then i'm logan sowash and i'm andy carr thank you so much for listening bye